Julie Remeyer's new book, Through the Shadowlands, is a fascinating story about chronic fatigue syndrome. And it has a particular resonance for me personally. I have a good friend who lived in my house some years ago who had chronic fatigue syndrome. And because of her illness, she lost pretty much everything that she held dear because of this disability. She was no longer able to work or ride horses or dance. She had to move away from home and family. And all of this she handled with a real grace and equanimity and with a remarkably objective scientific attitude. It was really impressive and it made me think a lot about how I might handle it if I had so much loss in my life. So when this book came out, I was really happy to see that it was by someone who was not only a science writer, but also a person who actually had the disease herself. What's hard about chronic fatigue syndrome, which you'll hear, is not only that it's a debilitating illness, but also how people respond to it. Doctors don't understand it. A lot of people in one's life don't think it's even real. And then there's another subgroup of people who think that they and only they have the cure, whether that's Eastern medicine or a special diet or their spiritual guru. And the reality is those things rarely, if ever, actually work. So this is a book that can give people a reality check about this illness. And it's a reminder that even while we've understood many diseases, we've eradicated smallpox, we have treatments and vaccines for illnesses that used to kill people, there are still other diseases that are not well understood and have as yet no really good treatments. So let's go now to our conversation with Julie Raymeyer. I'd like now to welcome Julie Raymeyer. She's a science writer and mathematician. She's author of the new book, Through the Shadowlands, a science writer's odyssey into an illness science doesn't understand. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Great to have you. You will be reading, by the way, on June 1st at 6 o'clock at the Steve Elmore Gallery here in Santa Fe and June 5th at Bookworks in Albuquerque. And we can talk about that a little bit more at the end of the show. But this is a fascinating book about an illness called chronic fatigue syndrome, also called myalgic encephalomyelitis. Well um, done pronouncing that. I'm <laughs> impressed. <laughs> I don't know. Not sure exactly. Will you explain what, what each piece of, of those words mean? But this is something that, you know, somebody like you might have written about as a science writer, a science journalist, but then you got the disease yourself. What was it like when you first started having symptoms? How did you come to realize that it was an illness and not just that you were like run down and stressed? Initially, I did think I was just run down and stressed. It was a, a hugely stressful time in my life. I was building my own house with my own hands. I was working full time, which was really more than full time. And my husband at the time was quite ill. So it was an over the top stressful time. So I thought, well, I'm tired. Of course, I'm tired. Like, who wouldn't be tired dealing with all of this? But it was a level beyond that. You know, I remember, for example, walking down the hallway to the bathroom and trailing my hand along the wall because I was afraid I'd pass out. The other thing that, in retrospect, was probably the most alarming thing about the symptoms that I had at the time was that I couldn't exercise the way that I used to. And in particular, when I tried to exercise, it made me feel much worse. And in particular, the next day, I felt much worse. That's actually the hallmark symptom of chronic fatigue syndrome. Despite the name, fatigue is not really at the core of the illness. The problems with exercise are much more central and indicative that that's what's going on. Now, this is an illness that is still 
very much in the process of being understood. The subtitle of your book says, An Illness Science Doesn't Understand. And you compare it to other illnesses like ulcers, which were thought originally to be caused by stress. Everybody's like, oh, the stress is going to give me an ulcer. And and then it turned out to be a specific bacterium and they could kill that bacterium. And now there's basically no more ulcers. And this chronic fatigue syndrome is an illness whose causes are still not well understood, not established. I mean, you can read the Wikipedia article and it's sort of, can, you can read the Mayo Clinic article and it's sort of confusing. And one of the things that drives patients crazy is that it's dismissed by many doctors as a psychosomatic or psychiatric illness. Tell us about your experience and the experience of other patients in this respect. Yeah, it's a huge, huge problem. The science is actually really clear that it's not psychosomatic. I mean, we actually really do know that at this point. That's not in doubt. But the word hasn't gotten out. So both regular folks and doctors commonly think it's just people being lazy and not pulling themselves together and, you know, maybe not taking care of themselves. And if they just ate well and exercised and weren't such lazy complainers, they'd be fine. Um, And so many people who have it, like you, are people who loved to take super long hikes and build their own house by hand. That is not the hallmarks of lazy people. Right, right. Yeah, the reality is so different from that. For many years, I was just kind of like something wasn't quite right with my body, but I wasn't convinced that I had any serious illness. And then in late 2006, I woke up one morning and I couldn't walk, could barely like stagger across the room. And so then I was like, okay, well, something's obviously really wrong here. And so I went to a neurologist because it seemed pretty clearly to be a neurological problem. And he was the one who diagnosed me with chronic fatigue syndrome. But he had no tests, no treatments, no other doctors to send me to, nothing. And for him, it clearly meant, please get out of my office. I have nothing for you. Right. So then I went to various other doctors, including uh, a neurologist who specialized in gait disorders. He watched me stagger down his hallway and said it was not similar to anything he'd ever seen before. And he said, well, maybe it's conversion disorder. And conversion disorder is a nice term for it's all in your head. So it's a massive, massive problem. It's an especially severe problem in the UK, where even now, patients sometimes get locked up in psych wards. And Europe as well, there's a, there's a tragic story of a young woman who was literally taken by the police from her parents' home. She was, I think, in her 30s at that point, so not, you know, not a child and locked in a psych ward for years yeah, and kept from her parents. Her parents couldn't communicate with her for months at a time. She was only released very recently and got very much worse during the time that she was locked up. So it's not just a nuisance that people don't understand. It really puts patients at risk. Do you think that being a science writer and a mathematician helped you navigate this disease when, once you realized that you were really sick? Very much so, very much so, on a a lot of different levels. One thing was that it just gave me the confidence to deal with all the difficulties of it and to to trust my own process of understanding the situation, you know, to doubt myself less. But of course, it also applied in, in a lot more direct ways. You know, I spent a lot of time digging through the scientific literature, trying to understand what was going on. I could 
talk to doctors and scientists and not get hoodwinked by the things they said. Right. Um, and it was helpful in also some kind of more surprising ways as well, particularly my experience at mathematics. As a mathematician, on one level, mathematics is very logical and proofs spell things out in perfect logical detail. But the process of discovery is really different from that. It's very intuitive. You kind of feel your way to a discovery based on your sense of how things tend to work in mathematics. And you just develop that over years of working, you know, puzzling out mathematical questions. And that gave me confidence in my own intuitive process to figure my illness out as well. And that was one of the kind of central tools for me in finding my way. You saw a doctor whose treatments helped a little bit for a while, but it didn't last. And then you started connecting with other patients through social media, and you found that a possible trigger for the disease might be mold. What did you think of that hypothesis when you first heard about it, and then what did you do? Well, so let me set the context a little bit, which is important. In late 2010, I was in a pretty good period. So good that I could even do, you know, mellow hikes, like three-mile hikes, which was great. And then I was on one such hike, and I was a mile from home, and I thought, I'm a little tired. And I had learned that the central tool for managing my illness was to stop as soon as I thought that. But of course... I was a mile deep in the wilderness and stopping wasn't really an option. So I figured I would pay for it with a day or two or maybe three days of pain and exhaustion and fuzzy head and swelling and all that kind of thing. But in fact, it turned out to be a year. (gasps) And so I spent a year bed bound about half the time and without any real prospects for getting better. At that point, I was living alone. I was often so bad off, I couldn't even turn over in bed. I couldn't really make a living. I didn't have family to turn to. It was a really desperate situation. I managed to write a story about chronic fatigue syndrome for Slate magazine. The result of that was that I got contacted by these patients, and I got exposed to this kind of subgroup of patients who believed that taking extreme measures to avoid mold had had enormous positive impacts for them. So when I first heard about this, I thought, oh, that's a bunch of hooey. You know, I what I had heard from the kind of like mainstream scientific opinion was that mold could cause asthma, allergies, respiratory problems like that, but it couldn't cause neurological problems. And what I had heard was that basically people who thought it did were pretty much nuts. However, I started seeing their stories on Facebook, and there was one story in particular from a young man who had spent two months living in the desert in a cargo trailer, and he posted pictures of himself running through the wilderness and lifting weights. And, you know, at that point, exercise, I'm doing air quotes here, exercise for me was like getting to the bathroom. You know, that was the limit of what I could do often. So I reached out to them and I was still super skeptical. I mean, I didn't have a lot of reason to believe that it was true, although it was, you know, kind of as plausible a theory as any other that I'd heard, really. And I was partly drawn to it because it was an experiment. And I thought, okay, I can run the experiment and 
find out what happens. And so you actually did this experiment, which was pretty cumbersome in the sense that you not only had to make your way to Death Valley and set up in a place where there was not a whole lot of like vegetation or water or anything like that, but you also had to use either new or other people's possessions. So it was a real like, I mean, nothing even really familiar. That's that's right. Yeah, it was a it was a huge thing to do. And I was on a little bit of an upswing right then just enough that I thought maybe I could pull it off. But it was also pretty scary because there was a real chance that I would end up paralyzed in the desert alone with nobody to help. So it felt like a pretty big uh, risk to take. And it took a lot to just, you know, physically for me to, to make it happen. But you did. I did. What happened then? It was an amazing experience. I, you know, of course, being completely alone in the desert like that is a kind of profound thing. And then after I spent my two weeks in the desert, I didn't have any clear sense at that point of whether it was working or not. You know, I I was going to have to get exposed to have any real sense of that. And I decided to go see this guy, Eric the Mold Warrior, he called himself. He lived in Reno. And he was the guy who kind of came up with this theory in the first place. And so I decided I wanted to go meet him. And part of the idea, too, was that he would take me on on a mold tour to famously moldy places. And, you know, the prediction was that I would react to them. So I drove to Reno and I, I met him and we had lunch together. And he ranted and raved about how chronic fatigue syndrome researchers hadn't listened to him and how outrageous this was. And he described how he had stalked these researchers to tell them about his experiences and to force them to listen. And even then they wouldn't listen to him. Yeah, because stalking usually works. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Can you believe it? He asked me over and over. And I sat there in this restaurant talking to him and I just thought, I am so embarrassed. I am so embarrassed that I took this seriously at all, that I put so much into pursuing the theory of this clearly crazy person. Like, what has become of me that I would do something like this? Right. Here I am, Julie, the scientist and mathematician. With this raving lunatic. (laughs) But he was a patient. He was somebody who had been as sick as you or sicker and was climbing high mountains. Yeah, he, he uh, six months after starting Mold Avoidance, he was able to climb Mount Whitney in California. So then he took me on this on, on a mold tour, and the first day he took me just to a Whole Foods that he claimed was moldy, and he paused at one point and he said, it's here. And I really, like, I had to work hard not to laugh. I felt like I have, I have, like entered a poltergeist movie <laughs> right right and and so you know he was then like the idea was that i would be feeling something and so i'm like tuning in and and i was like well does that feeling mean something does that feeling mean something but there was nothing obvious at all and by the time i left eric and went back to my hotel i was pretty convinced this was just all a bunch of hooey and and was pretty pissed off really Then I went to bed and I woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't walk, which hadn't happened in a month or more. 
And I had this sensation that I can only describe as poisoned. Like, I just felt awful. I had been told that taking a shower would make a huge difference, which was fairly bizarre because taking showers had never helped me in the past. But I went and I took a shower and I was able to walk afterward and felt much, much better. The long and short of it is that you got better. That's right. And that eliminating mold from your life entirely as or as much as humanly possible was what made the difference. So you basically kind of lent a lot of evidence toward this ranting man's hypothesis. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, it was such a shock for me. So I, I had this experience in Reno where I where I did react. And then I came home and I reacted really strongly to where I was living just as as had been predicted. And so I stayed out of where I was living. I stayed away from my stuff. And a week after I got back, I was just hanging out outside on my land and found myself feeling pretty good and decided to go for a little walk with my dog, which I figured, you know, I probably wouldn't go far, but feel good to move around a little bit, make my dog happy. And I ended up walking to the top of the hill behind my house, which is 350 feet high. I hadn't been able to do that in a year and a half. And I was absolutely blown away. I mean, you know, I was crying. I took a photograph from the top of the hill of the whole Rio Grande Valley, this incredible view from up there, and emailed it to all my friends with the subject line, oh my God. Because that was the first indication that this whole thing was actually going to make me better. I mean, okay, it was exciting to react and to have the sense that that was the problem, but that didn't show that avoiding it would actually make me better. But yeah, being able to take that hike was just amazing. So you and many other people with chronic fatigue syndrome have worked very hard to eliminate mold, and actually it's made a huge difference. That's right. So is this something that researchers are now looking into? Only a tiny, tiny bit. I mean, there are some glimmers at this point of change of some people getting interested in understanding it. But we're still really in the dark ages about mold. So one of the big questions for me when I had this kind of unbelievable experience for myself was it kind of posed a challenge for me. You know, here I am, I'm a science writer, and yet I'd had this experience that was completely contrary to what mainstream scientific opinion said was possible. And so I really wanted to understand, like, what's going on here? What do we know scientifically about mold? Does it make my experiences plausible or implausible? And why is there this belief that this couldn't be true? And what I found is, not surprisingly, really, science is done by human beings, and um, it's not a perfect process. And in the case of mold in particular, it was strongly influenced by the reaction of the insurance industry to court cases about mold. And the insurance industry really struck back and promulgated this notion that mold doesn't cause serious health effects, at least not beyond respiratory symptoms. And that had a huge impact on attitudes, both among scientists and the general public and judges and all of that. And it's made it impossible for researchers to get funding to study it. And not surprisingly, that means that we don't have a lot of solid science showing that mold can cause non-respiratory symptoms. And that then reinforces this notion that it can't because we don't have any science showing it. So, right. you know, 
It's a self-reinforcing cycle. This has been for you not only an illness, but a a really deeply personal and kind of introspective journey. And I was struck by a part of the book where you described the process of letting go by necessity your ambition. And, you know, you've always been a very ambitious person. And then, but, you know, you when you're that sick, you have to find other ways of being. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that really is a very key part of the book and part of the experience overall for me. When I was in Death Valley, of course, I, you know, I had nothing to do particularly while I was there other than the kind of basic survival tasks. And so I spent a lot of time just sitting in my camp chair, kind of watching the colors of the desert change. And, you know, it was a very introspective time. And in particular, I had all my life had had this real drive that came from childhood, really. I'd grown up with a kind of extraordinary mother who was very powerful, but also kind of unable to function in the world. So from my earliest childhood, I'd felt this sense of mission to save my mother. And that, over time, sort of stuck with me in different forms. You know, I felt like I had this obligation to go be a success and do great things in the world. And being there in Death Valley, it was like, it just seemed ridiculous. (laughs) You know, it was like, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, I was so sick. And there alone in the desert. It was just, it was just like, okay, this is, this is too much. Like, I, I can't do this. I give up. I quit. I'm done. <laughs> and so what I discovered was it was almost like a, you know, like a balloon popping, like it just was gone. That drive and ambition and, and obligation, you know, it, it wasn't just a, an I want to, it was an I need to, I have to, I must. And it was just gone. And then I discovered this incredible kind of spaciousness to my life. Like, I didn't have to do anything, you know, just making my food and, you know, occasionally sweeping out the sand out of my tent. Like, that was success enough. That was all I needed to do. Like, just breathing. That was the only thing I had to do. And then life took on such a different character for me. It became this huge gift. And there was a sense of kind of spaciousness and possibility that had never existed before in the context of all of that drive and need and requirement. There were suddenly basically no requirements. And has that feeling lasted as you've recovered and continued to recover? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. So before I went to Death Valley, I had this strange feeling that I was going to the desert to die. And it's not that I expected to literally be dead. You know, I didn't think that I was going to be carried out in a coffin or (laughs) something like that. Although it was called Death Valley. Right. I know. It was so, I had to laugh at that. It felt so appropriate. It was like, like the universe had a little laugh. (laughs) But I just had this sense like life as I had lived it was over. And so afterward, I've had this feeling like I really did die in the desert. Like all of that, like the way I had structured my life it was just gone afterward. You know, it's not that I think I'm immune from suffering, not at all, but it's more like, it's okay. If I suffer, I suffer. So that has very much stuck with me. And it's been one of the enormous gifts of this whole experience for me. I mean, it's not that I would wish chronic fatigue syndrome on anyone, but this particular form of suffering 
brought me some some really major gifts. So where are you now in terms of your health? So when I'm able to avoid mold successfully, then I'm pretty darn good. I'm close to 100%. When I'm not doing well, I can figure out what's gone wrong and figure out something to do about it. So I don't feel victimized by my illness anymore. And it feels like just kind of part of what I deal with in being alive in the same way that we all have various challenges in being alive. What is your hope for the book? I have pretty high hopes for the book. Certainly, I hope that it'll be really helpful to patients, both patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and and really people dealing with any kind of health challenge in terms of not just the specific strategies that ended up working for me, but kind of the overall approach that I took to my illness and my process of figuring it out. I also hope it'll have a big impact on the kind of public understanding of chronic fatigue syndrome and mold illness and kind of these poorly understood illnesses overall. I hope it'll have an impact on the research about chronic fatigue syndrome and mold illness. But I also, my biggest hope for the book really is that it will reach people who don't have any particular interest in these illnesses and kind of open some space and possibilities for them too. Because really the the fundamental issue the book is pondering is what do we do? How do we create meaningful lives for ourselves in the context of fundamentally not being in control? And I think the strategy that most of us pursue most of the time is that we just don't think about it. <laughs> you know, we kind of we construct our lives for ourselves where we're kind of in control most of the time and we can just sort of put it out of our minds that that's an illusion. And and it's a that's not a bad strategy. It works pretty well most of the time. And then there are those times when it doesn't, you know, when things go wrong and we're forced to confront, oh my gosh, I am truly not in control here. And I can live my life as smartly and well and everything as I possibly can and things can still go horribly, horribly wrong. And like, how do you live with that? Obviously, I face that in the particular context of chronic fatigue syndrome. But really, it's something that most of us at some point in our lives have to deal with. And I was able to find for myself some approaches that that really worked for me. So my biggest hope for the book is that people will sit down and read it, that they will be pulled into the story, that they'll read it just because it's compelling and, and fun and engrossing, and that they'll come out of it with a sense of a kind of ease, a kind of a perspective that allows them to be a little less afraid of that fundamental lack of control that we all deal with. And as a result, to have a little more kind of room to work in the world, you know, to have less constriction from that fear and, and more possibility in their lives. Julie Raymeyer is author of the new book, Through the Shadowlands, A Science Writer's Odyssey into an Illness that Science Doesn't Understand. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. 
And by the way, Julie will be doing a reading on June 1st at 6 o'clock at Steve Elmore Gallery on Paseo de Peralta in Santa Fe, and on June 5th at Bookworks in Albuquerque, also at 6 o'clock, and anybody can come and listen and ask questions. And uh, Absolutely. I think they're going to be really fun events. I, I'm planning to both read from the book and show some pictures and, and that kind of thing. I, I think there'll be a lot of fun, so I, I do hope people will come. Excellent. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. To find out more about Julie, you can go to her site, julieraymeyer.com, and I will link to that at scienceradiocafe.org. Her name is, her last name is spelled R-E-H-M-E-Y-E-R. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. You can check out the website at scienceradiocafe.org. We're on Twitter, at Radio Cafe MC, and at Facebook.com slash Radio Cafe. Many thanks to Steady Networks, providing managed IT services and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at SteadyNetworks.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.